All righty, folks. We're here with Eddie Birch, our guest junior. He's now turned in from being a guest to more of kind of like a recurring, you know, like host, like like a like a like a like a C like a co-host. You know, I don't know. Yeah, you're just kind of like what? I mean, not like a co-host, but like you know, he's going to be back again. He's just like it's fun hanging out with Eddie, and he knows some things, and you know. You guys That's, give me too much credit. <laughs> I, well, yeah, you're right. You're actually kind of pretty dim. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, there we go. We'll just reel it back in. But yep, decent uh, hair, and uh, it's mostly that. It's mostly we just like hanging. We're just all just like hanging out, and uh, pretty much, you know, dude, you do, you do know. Uh, it's kind of makes no sense because, like, I hear you talk, and I'm like, damn, he kind of does know what he's talking about. And I'm like, you've only been doing this for like four years, three years. And I I did it, you know, longer than that, but not as like, you know, you've had a different experience. You've like trained this team by yourself with a little bit of help this winter. And, you know, that's, that counts for a little bit more. And, uh, and of course, the seventh place I did a ride schedule and competing in these mid distance races, you know, it makes sense that you maybe are able to break down some of these races better than, uh, you know, you're, you're Brennan and I, I don't know. I, well, I studied the race, like before I started running dogs, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that really helped like with the table 200 stuff, like with betting on it, you know, I was trying to like pick these guys' brains, you know, like I'd go have long conversations with like Pete and Richie and, you know, even Dallas. Like I remember like we sat there at his banquet table for like a good hour, just like picking his brain on training running dogs building a team like race strategy and then you know you go like take what he says and kind of maybe put a little bit out there and see like well what do you think about this and say it to another musher and then like then you got a whole nother angle you know or like maybe their side of things like oh yeah that's a good way of doing it but you might encounter this or that and so it's just like through that process. And then when I came aboard on errands, it was like, he was like, Hey, here's your dog team. I'm trying to win. I did a rod and I'm, you know, doing my own thing. So like, I don't really have any time to babysit or help you out. So kind of here's your crew and go figure it out. And if you got some questions, you know, ask me or Tony. And that's kind of, I think that when you jump into it like that as well, like, you're forced to just figure shit out on your own pretty quickly. And so you kind of go through all that trial and error stuff and experimenting and, you know, and I'd pick their brains a bit. And, and then of course, like I wanted to, even though I was still a rookie and it was going to be like my first qualifiers and stuff, like I still wanted to go to these races and like have a good looking dog team and be somewhat competitive, you know, be middle of the pack. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think like through that kind of process, like my upbringing through the sport kind of helped me gain a lot of knowledge a little quicker than maybe Plus, most people's. You grew, yeah, you grew up in like in Alaska, done like the boxing thing. And that was probably, you know, some challenging training and mentally and physically. And just like, you know, you you're, grew up in Alaska. Like, dude, I like I still struggle to fucking set up a tent. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that upbringing helps, 
And then like, yeah, yeah being uh, an athlete and competing and all that kind of crap, like that definitely helps on a competitive level for sure. And then I think like the sports science behind it and the nutrition and things like that, like I was, you know, that was a big part of my background, like before dogs. So like, I think it translates really well into dog mushing. You know, these guys are athletes. Um, so the way to build for a marathon or for a boxing match, it's really similar to for a dog race and the nutrition behind it is very similar as well. So uh, that all helps. I don't know. Yeah. It all plays yeah. a role. How yeah, long? It how long would you say you were like closely following mushing before you actually got involved in it? Um, a couple of years. I mean, a year. Like before I kind of started like running dogs casually. Like, I think I followed the race for like a year or the race season, you know, um, for about a year. And then that next winter, I kind of started like the weekend warrior mushing. And then I think I did like one full year of like real consistent mushing. And then the following year I started with Aaron. So Aaron and Tony. Dang. That's just like that, that, uh, that rise is just so quick, you know, like, uh so like you weren't like paying attention to that ride when you were growing up or you kind of were but you weren't no like, not really. really yeah no and like i was into like like you know i was a wrestler so that was like that's a wintertime sport and then on my free time like you know i was into things with motors so like i was out there snow machining and you know i'd see like dog teams out in petersville and i'd be like what are these idiots doing you know <laughs> yeah like, I mean, it looks miserable yeah like i mean i thought it was cool um and i knew like the big names you know jeff king and boozer and all that kind of stuff but i didn't follow it closely and so essentially yeah. it wasn't until like your mid-20s until you actually kind of yeah six years ago dang six years ago and it was like three years of casualness and then three years of like Bam. serious yeah dog run dang that's pretty crazy yeah you know i remember i feel like people always ask like how do you get into it and it's like honestly like a willingness it goes pretty like that's about it like yeah. just are you willing to do it or not you know and yep. if you are there's plenty of opportunities and yeah obviously pick up you know a shovel out of kennel and start and scooping you, away yeah it's really not hard to get a job but it's hard to it's hard to have the you know the will to and uh, to want to start doing it is one thing and but to continue to do it because it's not it's not like it's dude if you go on like one 30 mile run brennan yeah on the denali highway after after that run you might be like okay that i mean that's kind of got a little bit boring there after like hour two you know it's like it's not you know a lot of people it's not like it's a, you're careening around the corner all the time and you know, it's super athletic, you know, that can happen, but yeah, I mean, just a willingness to go out and, and do it. And, and then of course the financial aspect of you're not really going to make any money. In fact, you're going to do the opposite. Um, yeah. And not everybody like has the opportunity to like come aboard and then just like start running dogs right off the bat. Like most mushers are not going to trust you 
Mm-hmm. It's like, come into their kennel. Oh, yeah, here's a bunch of yearlings. Like, go train my future right. team. You've never been on a dog sled before. <laughs> so, like, you know, there's that uh, beginning pro- – like, I got kind of lucky. You know, I, I went to Dakota's, and Dakota's like a one-man show, so he was just kind of like, we got 22 puppies, the harness break. Like, go ahead, take a team. Like, we'll go out together. And so, like, I got I got kind of, you know, thrown into it, and I was lucky to, you know, ha- have that. But there's a lot of people, they're just like a yard rat, you know, for the first several months. And, like, they don't even ever get a step on a dog sled or maybe they get to go on the whip sled, you know. And it's, like, not until maybe halfway through that winter or their second winter to where they're really getting some, like, dog training in. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some, there's something to be said for, like, luck, you know, getting with the right situation and having getting those opportunities there's something to be said for just your natural aptitude to like work with animals and be, you know, you're, you're on a freight train. That's pretty hard to stop. And there's a very small margin for error. And if you make an error, it can be a pretty high consequences. So I, I think that why you see a lot of hesitation from for sure. to want to let, you know, uh someone especially i mean like that's and that kind of is something i would love to talk to like some of the smaller mushers like someone like dd genre who's like you know she's like a buck 20 or something and she's going mushing (laughs) yeah she's like 100 pounds she's mushing 16 freaking dogs you know and you gotta like and and you gotta be like the alpha you gotta be you know able to stop a team like just stopping a team is pretty difficult with 16 of those dudes or dudettes well that's what i like kept running through my head through like these different areas on the iditarod trail it was like one the folks that have done it like in their 60s and 70s or even 80s i mean there's been mushers that have i think like norman vaughn i mean how yep. old was he i think he ran what was 10, his oldest age? I think he was uh, – he ran, I want to say, 10 Iditarods after he turned 70. And I think he might have ran it at, like, 81. Brennan's looking it up, Norman Vaughn. But, I'm going to go. You know, yeah. It's just, like, that is freaking incredible. Like, I mean, yeah. of course, they're going at a much slower pace. But mm-hmm. it's, like, I don't, I don't really care – what competitive like level you're racing at if you can get your ass down that trail and get to Nome and you're you know 60 years plus like you're one tough person absolutely yeah I mean we just talked to Gerhardt and you know he's not a spring chicken I think he's 55 mm-hmm. and uh yeah you know the, the that's like one of the craziest stories uh you know, there's obviously always something, some other crazier story from years past, but just kind of like you where he, you know, he had been mushing, but like in Michigan and like sprint dogs and that's like really different. And then he just but, comes no, up to Alaska and he's, you know, working for Mitch CV and he's like, I qualifies all in one year. And I remember like I met him before he, his qualifiers and I was like, dude, you're going to run all your qualifiers with like this little experience. But turns out he had some amazing dogs and great mentors and uh, a recipe for success. But 
you know, yeah, I'm really impressed uh, by that. And uh, yeah, I mean, 55, 60 or 33, it's like still freaking hard to, yeah. to, <laughs> to I'm do. So. Three and in fairly good shape. And I'm like, <laughs> this, this is fucking hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> What did you see, Brandon, on Norman? Norman Vaughn competed in 13 Iditarods after the age of 70 and com- completed four of them. He finished four of them. So. And what was his final run? Uh, that is not in front of me at the moment. Yeah, Wikipedia doesn't have, like, the deepest database of information on, like, you know, even the, the yeah. most famous of mushers, let alone You'd Norman Vaughn. His last go to race yeah, archives yeah. and his then look last at the completed history. race was in 1990, and he died. And let's do some math here. Norman Vaughn, I gotta look it back up. Um, he he died in 2005 at 100. Damn, so, yeah. So 15 years. Jeff yeah, saying a story. Five years old. He 85. In well, you ready for this? Get, can you guys take a guess on the uh, on the total time? Like fifteen days or sixteen days? Yeah, not fourteen. Even, not even close. Eighteen. Not even close. Twenty. Twenty-one days, ten hours, twenty-six. Damn, minutes. dude. The old oh. running like fifty miles a day schedule. Yeah, we'll shut him down for eight hours. I mean, dude, listen, <laughs> listen, 85 years old, you you, you get yeah. what you, you know, like you call your shot there completely. I mean, we've been saying that about our grandmother, like she can call any shot she wants at her age. And uh, if you're running like yeah. out at 85, you're calling your shots. So, I mean, but even like the first one he completed in 78 was 22 days. So. I guess Dude, the first what's the stat on the first the the winner of the first Iditarod's time? I think it's like 21 days. Yeah. And uh yeah, that's just the way it was. That was like an expert. That was literally they didn't even know that wasn't who's they any other faster. It's like, is there is this possible? Can we do this? You know, that was more well, more what that was like. 20 days. Yep. 20 days. Um, well, cool. So we're we getting way sidetracked. Yeah, yeah well, dude, that was kind of a cool. I that was know, a good I little that intro. Kind of that was the intro <laughs> to the episode. I like it. Well, people wonder how do you get in the mushing, and, and yeah, I think that's a good conversation to be had, and it's not something I ever really plan on having as like a we're going to talk about this today, but it just kind of worked out. Um, so yeah, you know, obviously we want to talk about Eddie's uh, I did a ride experience, and maybe we will get to that, but for now. Uh, just today, the Co- the Kobuk uh, 440, which is the toughest race north of the Arctic Circle, finished. Um, there was 12 mushers that started the race, and guess how many finished? All 12. You didn't get a chance to guess. I didn't give you a chance. I wanted to say it. And, uh, you know, it's a crazy race. Jesse Holmes, you know, was one of the favorites. I feel like, and I feel like we talked about it a little bit, Eddie, and I've talked about it with a few other people. You know, we were thinking – we're thinking Jesse Holmes, Richie Deal, and and then Hugh didn't really have the quality of training he had last year just because he ran Iditarod. He didn't yep. finish, but he ran 500 miles of Iditarod. So like it's that's just setup. perfect training. Exactly. 
like a 500 mile race before Kobuk and then to have, you know, almost a month in between to just kind of like give the dog some time off and then build them back up to a peak, you know, like that dog team is going to have some fire, you know, it's going to have some spark. So, yeah, I think last year he just had the perfect setup this year without Iditarod, without a, like a mid-distance race, anywhere in between there. Um, and then plus, I don't know, like Hugh lives, he doesn't live in Chugiak. You know, he doesn't live on site at the kennel there at Jim Lanier. So I think he only goes out there three days a week to run the dogs. So it's not like, I just don't think he got maybe the most ideal training and setup for the race. Right. And still a pretty, pretty darn good race. But a, a excellent performance. Michelle Phillips, you know, she's somebody that's always, she's finished third in the quest 1000. You know, she's going to be fierce and up there. She and won then, the quest this year on the Canadian side. Mm. And then, you know, uh, Bailey Vitello and Jeff Dieter, that's that. I mean, it kind of honestly, I feel like, look, I don't know a lot of the names at the bottom of the finishing list. I know Laura Eklund and uh, he lives up near the Brooks Range and Coldfoot, I think. And he's living a wild lifestyle, Live, lives out of a tent like all winter long. And he's like doing expeditions and. And he's like he's a woodsman. Like he's, he's a woodsman. Yeah, he's just by himself with his dogs. Wow. And, and a male he, model. <laughs> yeah, he's. I mean, he's, yeah. he's sponsored by like some winter. Uh, Filson. Yeah, Filson is that's like a is that it like a like a designer thing? It is. Yeah, it's kind of high end. Dude, I he's watched like, his like video that they post. Did you see the video that came out like a month ago of like that that Filson put together with Loro? No, I've seen the one of Dean Osmar, and that's pretty badass. Oh, okay. I would. I, we want. We should exchange these things. Loro's was sick, and it was just like you know he's walking around with his like Filson jacket on, just like with his dogs running around, and it was just really you know you could tell that there was money behind the video, and uh, it was really well put together. And I was just like, damn, dude, this guy's like. I kind of want to hang out with Laura and I have like, we have a bunch of mutual friends and, but yeah, he's, he's never really, his goals are never to win the race. He's just loves going out and being with other dog people and yeah, going on an adventure to doing his thing. You know, he, he's, he's always in the back and it's, that's what he's, that's not, it doesn't matter, you know? And uh, yeah, that's what I'm about personally, you know, for me, I, if I want, I want to get back into mushing at some point in my thirties and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be up there in the front if that happens. So, um, but yeah, I didn't, I mean, so I knew Jesse Holmes, Richie, Michelle, Hugh, Bailey, Jeff, and Martin, who's running Jeff King's dogs, uh, and is working with Amanda Otto. And then I didn't know Kevin Hansen. Uh, he's a, local. He's a co he lives in Kotzebue, Jesse Downey, uh, Dempsey Woods, Jim Borkin. I didn't know yep. those guys, but I figured that since I haven't seen the names and not, you know, that they were probably going to be finishing towards the back of the pack. And when I look at the finishing list of these names and I'm like, this is kind of exactly like I would have guessed that, you know, maybe not perfectly, but that kind of shook out like you would have ex expected it to. And it's awesome that everybody got to the finish line too. Yeah, which is rare. 
Yeah, you don't see. I don't can't remember a race I've ever followed where I mean, unless you count like the ace race or like a 50 mile race or whatever. Like this is a 440 yeah. mile race through like really rugged terrain. It was 30 below and colder out there. It's yep. freaking sunny. Uh and yeah, it's windy. And it's like to have everybody finish. This is a badass group of people, and it, even more importantly, a badass group of and of dogs. These dog teams are legit. Hell yeah! No, it's a tough race. I, I, in my opinion, you know, as far as the mid distance circuit goes, it's it's definitely arguably the toughest mid distance race out there. Um, right there with with Kobuck. I mean. You know, with I know. The, wait, 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 wait. You said about right there with Kobuck. You mean like I mean, with, with Cusco? Cusco, yeah. You know, but, you know, and I know there's like uh, the Copper Basin's got some like uh, some hardcore groupies that are like, oh, the Copper Basin's the toughest. Yeah. You know, Mid distance race, and it, I mean, it's got 18 hours of rest and five checkpoints. So like, it's got tough terrain and it's got a tough trail. For sure, and it definitely has trail typically. Yeah, it definitely has its challenges, but there's just another level of racing when you travel out to, you know, to Bethel for the Cusco or to Kotzebue for the Kobuck. Like it's just, it's just another another level of running dogs. Like the terrain in the Cusco isn't the toughest terrain, but when you're talking about, it's it's flat. You know, and it, yeah, but it, the weather sucks typically and it blows typically. And, but it's, you talk about, and, you know, the you schedules run? you're running, you're running 100 mile runs, you're getting, doing it in 40 hours, 45 hours. You know, yeah, yeah or, that's, you know, that's what the, I mean by tough, tough. You know, you're, uh, I ran a 40 hour race and I, uh, my first Cusco, um, I placed, I ran it in 40 hours in like 30 minutes or something like that. So I was under 41 hours and I still placed 12th. <laughs> That's insane, man. Uh, four, uh, first place was like 37 hours or 36 and some change. You know, that was Baylor's year. And these guys, they're clipping along. I mean, it's 11 mile an hour race. And for 300 miles, and not all of it is just flat, and not all of it is just hard and fast. Um, there's also these, you know, big open country. Like, you know, for some people don't really know this, but like when you get a dog team in just like pure white, wide open country, nothing to really look at, like it can be a little like heady for a dog team, you know? And they're kind of like, whoa, where, where are we at? And, um, then plus there's the glare ice. You run a dog team on glare ice for 300 miles, like just all the slipping and pulling and just getting a dog team to settle down and travel across these glare ice sections. And like, of course, when you are in glare ice, there's no markers, can't find the trail. And there's just, it's just a lot. And then 10 hours of rest, you know, and 90 mile runs. And it, depending on the year, it can be up to a 120-mile run from Antioch back to Tulisac. If it's, so it's a good trail and that's what it, the musher decides. It can be It can be a 120-mile run. And, like, I, I, everybody that's trying to be competitive does it nonstop. 
Damn. Wow. Yeah. Hundred that race. Miles. What's that? What's that? A total? How long is that? A take? It's like a fifteen-hour run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, like I had a group hour. of two and three-year-olds, and like so they were like, "What are we doing?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, good boy, straight ahead." <laughs> 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 oh gosh. And like you know, and they handled it really well. And then when we went up there this year, and we took third place, and like they were like, "This is a cakewalk." Yeah. You know, there's just a if you can get a dog team through some things in a still positive manner without like going over that threshold and you build that trust with them, like now they're like, okay, whatever you want to do, dad. And it, like this year when we went up there, like it was, there was no questions. Like they were just nice. motoring along. So, but yeah, I think those races are just extremely tough. Cobuck 440, this year they ended up taking like the shortcut from my understanding on the way over to Kiana and with all the snow, high snow year, it ended up being like some of these longer runs ended up being a little shorter. So instead of like a 90 to, it was like a 75. Um, so the snow does help, I guess kind of shorten the trail a little bit. So this year, they had a ton of snow um, and they did have a little bit shorter of some distances, but still a lot of those trails aren't traveled. They're soft, they're punchy. Um, like I said, your shortest run in that race is 75 miles. So it's usually four nineties and a 75. That's what you're looking at. Four nineties and a 75 and you have 20 hours of rest you can split it up any way you want. You don't have to do like way, even, you don't have to do like an even one hour. You can do like an hour and seven minutes. That's, that's right. And the, and, yeah, it counts. the minutes count. So like, yeah. you know, like, and I guess like I would stop like 10 minutes in Norvik, you know, do like a little quick water break, maybe change some booties or something. And then like that. So like, those 10 minutes and five minutes here extra like it all adds up and then by the time you get to your last checkpoint you know it's uh yeah you might have a little less than four hours or something that's kind of i guess what you're looking at you know have somewhere between three and four hours for your last rest so you, do you ran the cobalt last year yep and uh how did how is uh how was your experience with the race it was good. I took third place. Um, who won it? Hugh Neff won it. Richie Deal took second. I took third. Um, Ryan Reddington took fourth. Um, and I can't remember who was all behind there, but Jesse Holmes was in the race. Um, was Sass in the race? Brent wasn't in it. Jeff King was there. Um Still, that's a pretty good I, result. It, that's a great, it, it was, those are great it names. Really, it was a really stacked, it was a stacked field. Yeah. Uh, I think Nick Petit was there. Um, heck, I don't know. There was a, there was a long nice. list. Of, of so talented. there was like, what, at least 20 mushers? I don't know if there was quite 20 mushers. All right, I'm, I'm looking at it. We got uh, oh, three. Oh, yeah, roll reversal, out, dude. Pull, oh my gosh, what are you doing? 14 mushers. 
Deke Nackenborn, Martin Early, Jeff King, Derek Starr, Ryan Reddington, uh, Richie Deal, Jesse Holmes, Kevin Hansen, Dempsey Woods, Jim Borkin, all were in the race last year. Yep. Okay. And Dempsey Woods was in it the year before that. And so yeah, was so Kevin De- Hansen. So they run Dempsey. that shit every year. Okay. I'm, I feel like Dempsey, a dumbass. Dempsey, Borkin. Um, I got to run and get a charger. Uh, Borkin, uh, Hansen, and Dempsey are all locals. There we go. That makes sense. Yeah, that's awesome. And so they're they're they're, they're, they're going to be running that every year. Team. Yeah, they're good mushers. They got great dog teams. Um, yeah, good guys. So they're just they're more kind of uh, it's in the, the races in the area. So they're they're doing the race because it's there, but they're not necessarily like you're not going to see those names in too many other races, right? Yeah, getting your dogs from Kotzebue to anywhere else is going to be a real pain. Yeah, they might have goals, some of them, you know, maybe running Iditarod or something. I know Jim, I think he wants to, I think he wants to run Iditarod, so. Nice. Nice. So this, uh, so are, are, are you surprised Jesse won? Did you, like, any, Dude, any thoughts? Jesse- Jesse freaking laid it down. I mean, pure domination. Yeah. Like from the get go. And I, you could see how that team had a lot of fire in them after I did a rod. Um, I think Jesse set them up right afterwards, you know, given enough time off, plenty of short runs, like getting the speed back. And then plus Jesse's uh, he's won that race. He usually goes up there every year. He's always done well. So, 2017 so six years ago he won the race yep and he's always been up there in the top um and so yeah i just think jesse had the right setup he had a good game plan going into it um i think he managed his team really well they looked awesome at the finish so i mean it's no surprise i mean it's what i expected um and then, you know, Richie and Michelle and Hugh, I mean, they all look good. They had great performance, but Jesse was just – his dog team was on another level. And the reason that – and I talked about this uh, a little bit before we recorded, but, you know, it would be unreasonable to do 90, 90, 90, 75. You know, for those to be your runs is unreasonable if you did it in January. All right. But these dog teams are having, you know, at the at the least, you know, these these Iditarod teams have three thousand, maybe as much as five thousand miles on them. And, you know, this late in the year, there's just so much training that goes. And you can see the difference between the teams that have run these long races, Um, you know, Jesse Holmes and Richie Deal. Having been Iditarod veterans, Jeff Dieter's team was run by Katie Joe, uh, Bailey Vitello, Iditarod this year, Martin Early, Amanda Otto ran the uh, 550 with that team. Um, and then, you know, he just, he just runs at a pretty, pretty uh, aggressive schedule. So, you know, he's going to be up there anyways. But like it does, that's that's it doesn't. It's not surprising that they finished the way they did. Those Iditarod teams have so many miles, so much experience, so much trail hardness and toughness that you know, right? That's not really that 
like crazy of a schedule to pull off. And, uh, and I think Martin did some camping out there on the trail, you know, not all of them ran those straight, but and then you see the teams that haven't run these long distance races that are the local teams, right. Laura Eklund, uh, you know, coming, she's traveled a long way to get there, but, uh, that, that they're running that more relaxed schedule, but it's not unreasonable to do the, but like, generally speaking, if you run a dog team 90 miles, three times in a row, you know, that you don't want to do that in December and January when they, that you need to build a really, really good foundation of conditioning with your dogs to be doing something like that. And these guys have done it. Yep. Yeah, no. And, and plus as dog men, they all have the abilities to like manage a dog team for those 90 miles. Like they know how to do these 90 miles and then they know what to do in the checkpoint to like keep that dog team healthy if there are little sorenesses or little dings that come along the way, they know how to get a dog back up on step or, you know, they know when to drop them, things like that, just to like make these runs successful. And I have a question here. So well, oh, come on, come on, come on. Let me ask this question first. Okay. Fucking Brandon, fucking Get out of here. Damn. Uh, <laughs> damn. Kind of pushy, man. Hey man. Jeez. Um, <laughs> I was just curious about like, so the teams that just ran that Iditarod, they're not used to that schedule. So like, it, you you know, you kind of talked about that earlier, like they kind of reset and then kind of like what, what goes into training up for these five longer runs that they're about to do. Okay, fine. That's a good question. Fine. It's with the base that they have. It's kind of like what Sean was talking about. With the base that they have at this stage of the season, you can go and practically do anything with them, you know, long as you're managing them correctly. So a 90-mile run, when you have 4,000 miles on a dog team, it's, it's, it's easy for them. Um, or maybe I don't want to say easy, but it's, it's very – they're very capable of it and very capable of being successful with them. So – it's just you've started from September and it's now April. I mean, you got, yeah. you got seven months of just hard, tough training, lots of miles, lots of racing. Um, a lot of people and I did a rod. Um, a lot of these teams, you know, they did a nine hour run going into their 24s or maybe they did a nine hour run on the coast or, you know, um, so it's not like a nine hour run is unheard of for them or 10 hour run. Um, and so, yeah, they're just hardened up at this point. So uh, they're, they're very capable. Thank the, you. For, thank you for letting me ask a, a, a decent question, Sean. Yeah. Go ahead. I, go ahead. Take over yet again. Dude, I just want to go ahead. I, I'm sorry. I'm go sorry, ahead. dude. I'm uh -huh. I, you know, yeah. go ahead. All right. All right. All right. I love you, Brendan. And I'm sorry that I treated you poorly. And, uh, you know, I'm going to see you in 10 days and it's going to be great. We're going to have a great time. Um, so when you run a dog team 90 miles, uh, part one of the question is 
Well, especially when you know you've got another 90 coming up and then another 90 coming up and then a 75, right? When you're running these, what, like you're, uh, let me, this is, I, I don't have a ton of experience running 90. I've done it probably five times, you know? Mm-hmm. So I am thinking, you know, easy on the speed. Yep. Obviously don't want to go too fast. Of course you don't want to go too slow. That's probably not going to be a problem leaving the start line. Uh, but you know, conditions looked like they weren't, I don't know. I didn't look at the speeds of the runs. I mean, if, I guess, obviously if it's a good trail, you, I mean, or you want to take, like, there's such a thing as taking too many breaks. It's like, you think you should take more breaks. You know, sometimes depending on how the dogs are doing, you might run 90 miles with just, you know, a quick, booty break or a couple maybe a snack break um you know and so other times you might be stopping every hour you know to, but yeah i just like what's your approach when you're doing these like marathon runs with your team you don't want to you want to keep your pace but you also want to like keep in mind you got a while to go and it's for you sure. have a smaller margin for error when you run that distance all at once so there's a couple of different approaches to it but like you said speed you don't want to over rev but like this is or can be in the past um a a fast dog race um it can be done in like 60 hours i think the record time i think jeff has a record and jeff and tony browning i think have a tied record for like the true course and then i think there was a shorter year and nick petit broke that record and i don't know maybe jesse holmes too because i guess all four of those guys have done that race numerous times and did a lot of hauling ass so like it's not uncommon for these guys to almost average 10 miles an hour to 11 miles an hour just Uh, badass dogs it comes down to just bad ass hardened robust dog teams you know like and some badass dog drivers yeah yeah (laughs) sure um and so yeah you got a lethal combo there but so there's a couple different approaches you know of course um but those micro breaks are really important um and weather obviously plays a factor um because especially if it's really cold, you're gonna need you're gonna need those breaks. You're gonna need to get the calories and fuel into them. And if it's really hot out, same deal. Like you're gonna have to stop quite a bit, let the dogs cool off, um, get the make sure they're hydrated. You know whether that's through snacks or you're carrying a wet cooler. Um, and that's kind of the other thing. You know, some people are, are more of regular snackers. Others might be more of a, I carry a wet cooler and I feed them like a wet meal on the trail at, you know, let's say the 40 or 50 mile mark. Yeah. To get those calories and keep that hydration in them. Because when you're running dogs that long, um, you're going to, you're going to have a crippled up dog team. If (laughs) you know, you're not, you're not taking those breaks or you're not getting those calories and hydration fluids in them, you know, and flushing the system and keeping those guys on step. And that good Brennan. Go ahead, Sean. I was just looking at like resting when, when you rest for these, all right, you got these 90 mile runs. So is there anything different than, 
than what you would be your routine would be uh on a typical 50 60 mile i did ride run schedule you know I when mean, it comes I, to the rest I know, what, I know what i do um so i mean i i think there definitely is a um you know i know what works for me and works for my dog team and it might be different you know some people they can come in and they can get a meal into them right away. Some people need to wait an hour. Um, but I guess you have that kind of wiggle room with a, with a four or four and a half to a five hour break. You know I mean? Long as I think you're getting the, the fluids in them, you're getting the calories in them and you're not overfeeding them. You know, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, as long as you're doing that, then then you're good to go. Now, if you got a dog team that's not eating and you're trying to do 90 mile runs, I think it's just not gonna work. Or if you don't have a dog team that's drinking, like it's just it ain't gonna happen. <laughs> you're gonna be right. struggling. I was wondering if this was a race that when Lance was in his heyday, was this a one that he would normally run, or is he just mostly focused on the quest and I did ride? You know, I don't know Lance's track record um, in the Kobuck. Gotcha. Um, I am still have the race archive up, and he ran in 2006, where it looks like he – they don't have, like, the – the deeper into the history of the race that you go, the, like, less accurate it seems to be, or they, like – But it looks like Lance might have won in 2006. Okay. And – he participated in 2007, and let's see. Yeah. And then the other question I had was uh, the on the tracker, when looking at the mileage, it says 381. Uh, so you talked about, Eddie, you talked about how this year was a shorter route. Is, is that just like, am I just looking at like the wrong mileage on the wrong tracker or something? Or is that well, the actual I mean, mileage? That, no, because I remember mine was mine was over 400 when when I ran it on my GPS. Um, and that was on my handlebar GPS. So, but that, I, that's what I heard was, um, I know there was like, they took a shortcut on one of the routes um and then due to the high snow year you don't have to do as much zigzagging around you can just basically go like straight across you know on these overland trails um gotcha. because i mean we're talking like you know when you have 14 feet of snow i mean you're covering up all the bushes and shrubs and trees and what have you and so yeah they're not having to zigzag around and they can just kind of, you know, make a more beeline approach to things. Nice. Um, <clears throat> Sean, I see you kind of, uh, I see you, you doing some research over here. What do you, is there anything that you're, uh, oh, I was just or? looking at like the way they broke down the rest and it's like pretty much they all broke it down evenly and you had your, you know, three rests and they were somewhere between, you know, 
five to six and a half hours, uh, you know, you do your 90 rest, 90 rest, 90 rest, 75. <clears throat> oh yeah. It would be, because usually like it's a, I guess it's a, a 90. So it rotates, it switches every year. Um, from when you take off from Kotzebue. So it, next year it'll go to Selwick first and that's the route. Oh. So it's like a 90 to Selwick. So you do like oh, okay. four hours there and then you anywhere from four to five, a lot of guys, some guys like to do a three so then they can beat the sun in the heat of the day on their 90 to Ambler. So and then you go to Ambler and it's a 90 there basically. And then you're going to do another four to five rest. And then you're going to have that, um, the Cobuck loop, which is your 75. And then you come back to Ambler, you're going to do another four to five and then go from Ambler to Kiana. And then you're going to do your four to five there and then run straight to the finish. Right. So it was more like a 71 or ish run to Kiana, Kiana, and then, uh, let's see. Should be about a 90 to 85 mile run to Ambler. And then the Cobuck loops like 75 miles, 70 miles. Yep. And then you go back to Ambler and you're going to do a rest. And then from Ambler to Selwick should be a good 90. That's according to this, it says uh, 76. So, okay. yeah, shorter, definitely some shorter runs. So, was it 90, 90, 90, 75 or 75, 90, 90, 90? But that's kind of the general gist of it. You know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. These, these are 70 to 80. To 70 to 90 mile runs and there's four of them and uh yeah it's a quiet that's great and there's a there's some mountains i mean i is, is it flat no no so you Hell go through no. range i mean you definitely do get a good amount of river running um th- there definitely is a lot of flat parts of the trail but there's definitely a lot of like hills i mean there's nothing crazy as far as big steep climbs or whatever but when you're going through the brooks range it's a soft trail i mean i remember like my dog teams just like falling through and disappearing like and all you could see it was like their head sticking up you know and it was like just walling around you know and you're going up hills and mountains and because these trails are not traveled uh this goes through the this is the only sled dog race that goes through a national park and that national park is not getting snow machine through. Right. So that's probably one of the softer sections. Yeah. So like through the Hills, I guess from Kotzebue all the way to Selwick, you have a pretty good trail. Like that's traveled, but then from Selwick to Ambler, that's not really traveled. So you have a, you have a soft trail there. Um, then that Cobuck loop, there's really, I mean, from when I did it and my experience, it wasn't a whole lot of traffic. It was a soft trail through there. 
Um, but we had also just gotten like a, a foot of snow or six inches of snow, something like that. Um, <clears throat> and then the trail leaving Ambler over to Kiana, that's like, that's not traveled. And that's where you go through the Brooks range and all this. So it's really soft. Um, and then from Kiana to, uh, Norvik and Norvik to the, of course, to Norvik to the finish line, it's, it's highly traveled. There's a little bit of traffic. I think that you get from like Kiana to, to Norvik. So it's, you're on the river and that area is not, not bad as well. Hmm. So it's kind of like closer you are to Kotzebue, obviously the better it gets. Right. Kotzebue is a, is a town that's uh, kind of the hub of that area, you know, and Ambler of course is uh, got people living in it. Um, you know, what should these, are these all the, like the Kobuk loop, like Shungnak, is that like, is that a village? Is that? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a few people there. There's, there's like, there's like, there's like some guy named Greg there. Yeah, there's a family <laughs> or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know so, what the population is, but I mean, it's a small little village. They all turn up, though. I think, I think like every single one of them is there at the checkpoint when you roll through, and they're there cheering you on. They got food. Um, amazing community, like. Same thing in Kobuk. They're all there cheering you on, like watching the teams come through. And like there's some of these guys, they really know dog mushing too. And they know dogs. And there's a lot of old timers out there that used to have dog teams. And so it's a it's a doggy community. Dude, so we got stats are Kotzebue's three thousand plus people. Ambler's two fifty-eight. Shungnak two fifty-seven. So uh, I'll come up with some other ones, Brendan, while you ask your question. Uh, I was going to ask you how the mass start was. Uh, is that the only race that you've done where you have the mass start? Yeah. Yeah. No, the mass start like definitely adds another level of excitement for the dogs. Yeah. And then plus you have like the start of that race is kind of wild because it follows along an ice road for a bit. And then there's a lot of snow machiners that fall along the trail for like the way to on to like Norvik. So like for that first 50 miles, you have a lot of vehicles going up and down the ice road, people pulling over, honking their horns, cheering you on. So like snow machines everywhere, people. So like that first like 50 miles, it's, it's hard. It's hard to like keep your dog team, like settled down under 11 miles an hour. Like you're on the drag pretty heavy, like easy guys. Cause it's just, it's a lot of excitement. And then plus with a mass start, you know, it's just, it, it, you have a large group of mushers just all traveling right next to each other, basically, you know, it, it kind of takes a good 40 miles for us to get a little spread out. And what is a, uh, like, in terms of <clears throat> the order of how you're spread out, is that based on your bib number? Is that just based on how you like, pull up to the the start line so yeah they they you they have it marked so you know from left or from right to left you know it goes one two three four you know with your bib number okay so it is based on that 
And then uh, so what was your tactic in that? Like, are you like full send? I left like last. You you purposely left last? Yeah, I just let everybody go. <laughs> yeah, that's what shot. We were talking about that in the in our last recording, and I, Sean was saying that that's probably what he would do too. Yeah, I mean, every, it just depends, you know. I mean, it was more teams for me to end up eventually passing. But, you know, I knew what I wanted to approach the race with, and I knew, like, what I could do with my dog team. And I knew there was going to be some dog drivers that really went out there and kind of like set the tone. And I figured that a lot of them would follow. And I guess I didn't think it was going to be sustainable. And I thought a lot of these guys would blow up. And that's what ended up happening. Like, I think I came into Norvik second to last. And then I came into Selwick like third or fourth from last. And then I left Ambler in fourth place. And then when I got back to Ambler, I was in third place. Wow. And so by the time I was back in Ambler, I was in third place and third place all the way to the finish line. Nice. Okay. So to finish the uh, populations that no one cares about, but I'm going to tell you anyways, is Norvik and Selawik are around 700 and then Kiana and Amber are in that two to three hundred uh, range. So those are the um, smallest. Dude, it's crazy. Like the terrain there. Is, is it confusing when you are like, are you fully aware when you go from lake or sea ice to land all the time out there? Not always, because I mean, it can be really flat and it can be stormy and. You know, sometimes you're like, is this a lake? Am I on like, yeah, am I in some like wide open ocean country? Like, what is this? So, and the rivers are big and wide. Um, and it's really beautiful. Like, if you get some clear weather, it's some pretty country. And there's a lot of caribou out, a lot of wildlife. Like, I saw a wolverine on the trail. I saw a bunch of caribou herds. Um, so yeah, a lot of caribou action on that Kobuk loop. Brennan, what do you know about Wolverines? I know that, uh, we saw, let's see on the bucket list. When we did our trip to Denali, I remember that our tour guide, shout out to our tour guide. What's remember her name, Sean? Patty, Patty, shout out to Patty. I think so it was Patty. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was hundred percent Patty. Uh, okay. She like made like a bucket list and Wolverine was on the list. And I'm pretty sure that we saw a Wolverine, but we didn't actually see it kind of thing. Like it's just like a little blah, blah. It was like a, yeah. it was like a, it ran across the road. And by the time we actually saw it, it was already in a bush kind of thing. But uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's the extent I know of Wolverine. I didn't actually like really, really see it. The only other way I know Wolverine is, x-men i was gonna say did the wolverine have sideburns or what uh it looked like a sexy uh, a sexy hugh jackman yeah come on you yeah i literally you can't deny dude, that when i came to alaska like to go back to you growing up eddie in alaska and me being from atlanta like i literally thought wolverines like i didn't i didn't know I thought that it was made that up 
I didn't know. I thought that was just the X-Men. That was the end of how yeah. that's the whole, that's what Wolverine is. And then I thought the sled dogs were like, no, no, I thought like reindeer. I didn't, I thought that was just like a mythical thing, you know, like mm-hmm. oh, reindeers are just, that's just like a Santa thing, you know, like yeah. it, that, yeah, it was, it was oh. brutal. It was brutal. And then, and then the first thing, like I showed up like first thing in Alaska, I'm going like to Kodiak, the southern end of the island, like around these hardened fishermen. And, you know, I was with my family and they were very like forgiving and understanding of how green I was. But like we would go to the cannery and I just like see this like guy that's like sitting down on the bench or whatever, just like waiting to for the phones. And I'm like looking at him like I don't even know like how like what do I say? How do I start? The- Dude, and because my mom and Brendan worked at CNN for a long time. And I just like, I hadn't, fin- I hadn't figured out politics or anything. As to represent my family, I wore a CNN hat, like bright red CNN hat. <laughs> and, that went over and I was just like walking around these fishermen with like my CNN hat. And I remember one guy, I don't know, just some random guy, he like looked at me, he's like, so uh, you like CNN and I was just like sitting there like I was like I need to burn this fucking hat dude (laughs) oh that's hilarious not a good way to make friends no I didn't make any there were so it was most of them are very very difficult to I didn't have anything in common though like I didn't know what to say they'd be like talking all this like vocabulary about fishing that I just didn't know and they'd be talking with like my aunt and uncle who've been there for 20 years or whatever. And I'd just be sitting there like, yeah, 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 totally. I know how to tie those knots. And I also can tie these knots. And I know how to tie any knots. But now, now Eddie knows how to tie a bowling. Oh, yeah. To tie a ball. Oh, dude. No. What's that? I said, that's the only knot you need to know. Yeah, the bowling and, and uh, you know, and mushing. Yeah. What? Hey. So this is kind of getting into the weeds of things, but what kind of like what's your gang line set up? As far as like the the length. Well, what kind of like do you use like the cable kind? Do you use a yeah, rope? Yeah, I use a cable, um, eight foot sections. Um and I'm at uh what 39 inch tugs. And so and the I cable and that, the, the sections are you separable and removable. So that's yeah. nice. You have your continue on. You said your necklines and tug lines. Yep. Um, so I, I run necklines. Um, I do like a 39 inch tug. And that's like a full like I, I don't I can't remember the measurements, but that's there's basically the two. There's basically two lengths and there's some other alternative styles to it. Like the full length. Yeah. With X-backs. Yep. You know, your standard looking dog yeah, harness. Harness. So like people that run like half harnesses, they'll run a shorter tug line, you know, and probably shorter gang line sections as well. And that's like back to those philosophies that like mushing, dude, everybody's got their own opinions on this and that. And I think that they all work and it all depends on everything. So I think they all work. I think they have different purposes. I think like a half harness or those like buggy harnesses, 
which ones are the buggy harnesses? Just like ones that go across the chest. That's like the yeah. Pete Kaiser does that, right? Yeah, Jesse, I think uh, Mila. It's become pretty trendy over the past like two years. Yeah, I saw it. Riley had some too. Yeah, yeah, Riley made a bunch. She's been getting this so on, very crafty. Um, they look good though. So nice. I think. And well, and I mean, I think it's this is all factual, not even opinion. You're not going to find a harness where you get more power than in an X-back harness. An uh, X-back harness, you're going to get like the optimum amount of power. Dogs pull from their chest. They want to feel that. And those X-backs, the way they fall along the dog's body. Um, it's just, you're going to get the most amount of power now with a half harness before you move on, Brendan X back harness. What does that mean to you? I'm thinking like right here, (laughs) (laughs) right Right here. here. I don't know if I'm a dog, it's like, it's it's like like an X that's coming across my chest and over my shoulders. What is the harness called? Uh, uh, X, X pack, back. Oh, back. Oh, I, I was right. hearing it as X pack. <laughs> so the X is on the is back. on the boom, right? And it's hey. not the X is actually not. It's just connecting the different parts of the harness that are really important to and keeping them kind of together and organized. But they're not. Wait, the X wait, is actually what, what beer is that? Real quick, what are we sponsored by today? We are officially sponsored by Alaska Brewing Company. Hey, I like it. <laughs> so I saw limited edition and I was like, I don't I don't know if that's any good or not, but it says limited, limited edition. So I'm buying it. Gotta do it. <laughs> good sales, good sales good. move there. Good marketing move. Yeah. All right. Good marketing back. on their part. It got me and um, I wasn't disappointed. And you're you're drinking another and you're a happy camper. I am nice. And, you know, I, I just moved out of my cabin in the Nana and I brought back one of my race bibs and it's like sitting in front of me and it says Alaska brewing on it for the Yukon quest. Nice. Oh, but nice. Uh, yeah. So uh, for all you mushers out there and fans of dog mushing drink Alaska brewing. Cause they sponsor, I did raw, they sponsor the quest. They're big supporters. So so they literally are. This podcast is literally brought to you by Alaska Brewing Company. Hey. Here at Alaska Brewing Company, it's not just about brewing. It's not just about beer. It's about <laughs> dogs. It's about the people. Because at Alaska Brewing Company, we care. We care about Alaskans. Bam. Bam. And that's uh. fucking rap. Uh, <laughs> dang. They that's didn't even have to pay us. They didn't even have to pay it. Sean, are you drinking Alaskan beer right now or what? No, I'm drinking also a local Alaskan beer. Uh, it is a King Street uh, brewery, and it's an American pale ale, my favorite type type of beer. And, and you uh, know, King Street needs to, like, hop on the bandwagon here and start uh, sponsoring some races. Let's go. Shout out to King Street. Let's go. Yeah, Anyone there's, listening? like, dude. 
that's honestly there's so many breweries around here man like they should just throw us like throw like throw us like 400 bucks you know that and then you know and if you added all the breweries in anchorage alone 400 bucks that'd be like a twenty thousand dollar sponsorship for the idea ride you know the math might be a little little wrong, but you know. don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm an econ major, Eddie. I'm an econ. Oh, major. we're we're gonna leave the numbers to Brendan. Okay, oh, all right. That's for the best. Cash. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, all right. So I wanted to go back to full. Circle. I don't even remember what we're talking about. No, no, oh, no, 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 no. Harnesses, but yeah, we can forget the harnesses. There's a lot of harnesses. We don't need to talk about them all. But there you go. X backs. They're on the back, not on the front. X-backs. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. First yeah, of all, of I just I have to clarify, I did not work at CNN for very long. And what I did at CNN was I was a tour guide. All right. Okay, so that's true. I, as it relates to politics, I don't even go there. Right. So I don't have anything to say about politics. But I think know, things, though. I think, I think things, things about politics. I think things. Yeah. I think but, things. And I and I say them with other people that I want to talk about it with but i'm not going to say things here's the thing the general i'm not going to make my opinions known to everybody here's the thing you grow up for me you grow up with parents that worked at cnn they worked at cnn when cnn first started and in the 80s dude no other there's no other like first time we had 24 hours news i'm sorry go no other news network like it um but like for me, growing up around the news all the time with mom and dad working there, it's just like I'm I'm so over it, you know, so I just like, you know, I, I removed myself from that. But I just wanted to follow up. I didn't work at CNN that long. What I did there was a tour guide. It was my first job out of college. Dude, no judgment, man. Hey, hey. Hey, you don't gotta worry about that. Sean, but Sean's like, oh, mom, mom, and Brendan, uh, and my dad. Were, yeah, they worked at CNN forever, and so it's really just fun. mom and dad. Yeah, mom and dad, dude, they combined for like 40-something years there. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's uh, 40. Reporting the news is in your blood, man. Yeah, Dude, that's it. Cause, because here at King Street Brewery, it's not just about the people. It's about the beer. <laughs> Back to you, uh, Tommy. <laughs> no, and then the other thing I was I was thinking about, you, you said something in a previous uh, podcast, Eddie, where you were talking about how you love – uh we were talking about food and you were like oh i just eat moose meat like every night or whatever um and so i was going in my freezer sean and i found you came home with some moose meat and somehow i hadn't cooked it yet and this was just like a couple weeks ago yeah carlos mentioned this to me Yes, I pulled it out and whipped up some uh, some like Mexican style food and used that as like the the brown beef, the, what I would normally do with ground beef. And it was so freaking good. I was like, I need more of this moose meat. Uh, and so I, I was I was thinking about you, Sean, because you gave it to me. But I was also thinking about you, Eddie, because you're like, oh, I just I live off that stuff. That's all I need, man. That's the dude. It's rocket fuel, man. It so is, my dude. Body off of. But now I'm in the big city, and so I'm running off McDoubles. Oh. <laughs> Real okay. drop in quality there. Yeah, I think my I, body. Yeah, dude. I Anchorage being here, the, the food. I I'm I make some poor decisions. Um, but I am 
I'm I'm scheming up plans to get some more moose meat here in the fall. So uh, fingers crossed that it works out. My Sweet. fingers are very crossed. Dude, the thing is, Brendan and I are scheming to go to a Bruce concert that's in like the beginning of September, which is kind of interfering with the moose season a little bit, but I might be able to make, make it work, all right? Squeeze a hunt in there. Squeeze a hey, man, there. We'll any, anything to go see Bruce with Pops, you know? Yeah, yeah, you got to do it. Got to do it. You got to come up to see Pigeons playing ping pong at the Alaska State or the uh, Salmon Fest. But also at the same time, it's expensive to come to Alaska, and I get it. Yeah. Yeah. What are we talking? Are we are we still recording right now? Okay. All right. So yeah. uh we got derailed. We've mm. got derailed officially. Completely. Um, but we can't come back if there's any other thoughts about the Kobuck or that we want to wrap up on. Uh obviously we're gonna have Eddie back on to uh, break down his Iditarod run, his rookie of the year run, his seventh place finish run, his falling off the sled run. Gosh, he's probably tired of hearing that uh but yeah anything else we want to bring to the table in this one i mean i th- i don't know i th- I think we covered quite a bit of the kobuck um jesse dominated other teams all got across the finish line which is a huge accomplishment so and you ever see- be like good spirits good looking dog teams um so yeah i think it was a great race up there for everybody yeah, people forget about the Kobuck there. They like, oh, Iditarod's over, racing's over. We'll see you in a year. Uh, so, I've never – I was – the Iditarod's such a relief to be over, whether I'm in it or I'm training someone else's dogs or whatever, that I, like, don't even really look pay attention to the Kobuck much. So I'm glad to – to, like, get back into it because, like you said, like, after Iditarod happens, like, for most mushers and most handlers, it's like, thank God. you know like everybody wants to go have a life at that point or like go do fun shit with their dogs you know go do fun little trips or you know go on vacation or whatever because we've been like hard at it grinding since like september or august Mm -hmm. yeah jesse holmes Star of Life Below Zero on National Geographic. This podcast is brought to you by National Geographic's Life Below Zero. Okay. It's also brought to you by that. But it's fun how many times and working in tourism industry, I constantly am, when I mention mushing, they're like, oh, you know, I've seen, I can't remember the name of the show, but there's this guy on there. And I'm pretty sure he won the Iditarod. And I'm like, Jesse Holmes. And now he didn't win the Iditarod, no, but he won Rookie of the Year. But nope. he's, nope. he's actually a friend of mine. And he's, you know. Uh, and, and I've watched one episode with him on it. And it was it was, I, it was hilarious. He, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, look, here's the thing, dude. Mad respect to Jesse being on that show. That's hard work. Like, I've seen, I've talked to him about it. He's like, dude, like, you're you're he's working just as hard as anyone else would be working to make the amount of money he gets from that and you have to create storylines you know and sometimes like things aren't that exciting when you live in the middle of nowhere you're just kind of chopping some wood you know getting some dog food running dogs like it's like sometimes it's not that exciting but anyways he makes these awesome storylines and one of them was like he was trying to get the boat out of the frozen freezing river Mm -hmm. 
and he he's like i don't know man i don't know how it went how it actually was went but he basically they were like trying to make this drama of like if he can't get the boat out of the river like he's totally screwed so he was like you know the narrator is like if jesse holmes can't get the boat out of the freezing river he won't be able to feed his salmon to his dogs and the dogs are going to need to be the only way that he can be transported to, throughout the wilderness of alaska and he won't be able to survive and this and that and i'm like dude he's just pulling his boat out of the river for the winter like this is like a very simple task and so like he like hooks up the like he hooks up the truck to the boat because the truck's on the bank of the river the boat's in the river and Mm -hmm. he starts pulling the boat out of the river onto the bank and then like he says you know fuck or something and they bleep it out and then like it goes to commercial and he's like you know, they're like, oh, no, just went there. And we'll be back to after the break. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then you go back to it. And he just pulls it out of the water. And it's totally fine. Anyways, that show is pretty entertaining. Characters <laughs> on that show. And <laughs> I'm stoked that Jesse's on there. And uh, I think he's doing great. And I, lo- I love watching it. And you should, you guys should watch it, too. Hell, yeah. No, he's, uh, Jesse's an awesome dude. He's like, he's a good dog, man awesome sportsman like you know i was telling you guys before he was the only one willing to to lease me some dogs for i did a rod yep you know it was the only mushroom and you know and i'm sure there's maybe some others but i made a lot of phone calls and jesse was like the first guy to be like hey yeah i think that like for some reason there might be some people in the mushroom community that kind of think like since he's on tv he's kind of like, oh, you're not a real, you know, you're not, come on, dude, this guy's like a TV star. It's like, no, dude, he's like living as genuine of a mushroom life as anybody could. And he's the like the real deal. And I don't know why anyone would have a problem with he him. He's a, he's a really good dude. He has to haul all of his own water. He has to haul in all of his firewood. Um, he has to haul in all of his food and supplies to live. 25 miles from the main highway in the winter, only accessible by snow machine in the summer. It's a dirt road or dog team. Yeah. So, you know, there's like that whole rush to prepare for winter, like get the big stockpile wood and all these things to prepare to live off the road system, you know? And like, he doesn't really glamorize it either, like, or glorify it. You know, it's not like he's on social media, like, look at me living this rough and tough, you know, like, oh, and I'm off the road system because there are some people that do that. And like, Jesse's just living his life out there, enjoying it with dogs. Um, And he only had one handler for the most part all throughout the season. And he's, or, you know, and he's got 70 something dogs. 70 80 dogs you know training all these guys raising pups b teams like he does a lot of races like yeah i mean you know how difficult that is yeah that's um to prepare for and so yeah jesse lives a, a tough lifestyle and he does a lot of it by himself he works extremely hard and then like these you know, uh, film crews come in to like film an episode and he's got to like basically shut down everything he's doing and cater to them for like 10 days, seven days and film these episodes. And like, yeah, like you said, come up with storylines and 
so like i i know it can take away from like his dog mushing and training and like a distraction but you know it's part of his income and it's what he does and so and i i think every other musher out there if they had the opportunity they'd be doing it too uh, but like you were kind of saying there's there's a lot of haters of it you know Whoa, tv star hollywood like dude he's like he's doing it man and he's yeah it's yeah. farthest thing from hollywood i feel like and he's he's yeah. representing me and brendan as you know one of the most successful all-time mushers uh from the southern region of the united states he's that's right. i think he's from alabama he's lived in georgia you know and so it's fun talking to him he's got a little bit of an accent and, the dirty south yeah, i love dude. the accent Good dude. man i love it <laughs> right on well Let's. I think we should wrap it up. What do you think? Yeah, I think we're at a yeah. good good point. Like I said, we'll be following back up with Eddie to more specifically talk about his Iditarod run. Um, with this being, this is the last race of the season of significance. There might be some other smaller ones regionally and whatnot, but this will probably be the last race that we talk about for the season, don't you think? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, nothing. <laughs> yeah there we go yeah so uh so yeah so we'll have some uh we'll have some more episodes coming up with some guests on and we'll kind of uh be talking to, to different uh folks who finished the race or who were involved in the iditarod and uh yeah hope you guys enjoyed the episode